Hey there, welcome back to Burgers, Beers and Books. I'm your host Ben Hobson and this is the podcast where I talk to your favourite authors about their favourite novels. This month I am so stoked. Uh, Let's just, I need to tell a little bit of a story. We had something planned and due to circumstances that were beyond our control, uh, I had a last minute panic on my hands where I had about two or three days to organize an interview about a book, read a book, you know, it, it turned out, uh, it was it was scary. But I turned to my good friend, Rowan, who uh, has recommended so many books to me over the years and we chose a book to talk about that I'm really excited to bring to all of you today. And Rowan very capably stepped in uh, in a bit with about two days worth of notice and um, talked about this book like uh, he'd known it his whole life. He was the author. Rowan, uh, for those of you who don't know Rowan, Rowan is the author of The Roving Party, to name those lost and daughter of bad times. And he is a creative writing lecturer at uh, Queensland University of Technology in Queensland. So. He knows what he's talking about, he knows the biz, he knows what he's doing, and I'm really stoked to bring you this conversation with him. I did forget to mention the beers we were drinking. I actually forget what Rowan was drinking. I was drinking Great Northern, and I'm gonna be honest, it's because it's lower calorie than other beers. I'm trying to, you know, I'm on a bit of a health kick, so I'm trying to eat and drink and be merry, but you know, you gotta have your beers, so it's good to just be sensible. And the Great Northern tastes pretty good. Not great, but pretty good. Anyway, here's Rowan and my chat. Enjoy. Hello. So I'm here with uh, the wonderful, the effervescent Rowan Wilson, uh, who's joining me from his lockdown Brisbane apartment. How are you, Rowan? Very well, thank you. Effervescent? Oh, I don't know if I am. I'll try my best to be effervescent. Lockdown <laughs> can do that to you. You just—you look so sparkly and happy. Um, so I just wanted to explain a little bit before we get into the episode today about what brought us here. So I did have lined up a completely different guest, a completely different novel, but just due to circumstances beyond our, anyone's control, just really unfortunate, that sort of fell through. And so I did what we call in the business... Uh, an hysterical pivot and <laughs> messaged Rowan and I said, Rowan, can you please help me? I need to do a podcast in two days to make the cutoff time. And Rowan said, heck yeah. So Rowan, I'm just so grateful. Thank you very much for stepping in at the last minute. My pleasure. Uh, we, uh, we've picked a good book to talk about and it's one that I can talk about for hours upon end. So yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's I was very gonna... easy for me to step in. Yeah, so normally what happens when we do this podcast is I take the month to read the book, get some questions, sort of have a real think about it. So obviously with two days, we haven't been able to do that. But the story of this book was that you and I have had a lot of conversations about Australian literature and you often recommend a lot of novels to me. And this was one of the first or second novels, like it was the top shelf novel that you'd recommended to me to read as far as being an Australian writer is concerned. Um, So do you want to maybe introduce the novel just for people so we can just sort of let loose with the title and just maybe talk about why you encouraged me to read this novel in the first place? 
it is, it is a top shelf novel. It is one of the absolute best novels written by any Australian author, I would say. It's, it's Gult's Book of Fish by Richard Flanagan. So I'm a Tasmanian, um, just like Richard Flanagan. And it's, <laughs> it's a book, it's, it's an especially important book for Tasmanians, I think. It's one that really encapsulates so much about what it is to live on the island down there and about our history, about the mm. weirdness of what, what history, and about the weirdness of writing about the past as well, which is, which is one really interesting aspect of this book. Yeah. But essentially, for, for those who have never read it, and, and that's probably going to be a lot of people, this book looks pretty old. This is like 2001 or 2001. yeah. 2001, yeah, so it's yeah. pretty old now. It's, it's probably faded a little out of the conversation as well. It, it's, it's, it, was, it was a massive book when it came out in 2001, huge, massive bestseller. Yeah. Got listed for a bunch of prizes. But these days, it's not spoken about all that much in some you know, his, Richard Flanagan's later novels have kind of overtaken. Your Narrow Road to the Deep North is the one that we all think about now. Yes, about absolutely, it. yeah. Um, but yeah, for, for people who haven't read it, basically what this book is about, um, it ha it's, it's, a, it's a frame novel, so there are two stories going on at the same time. Uh, we open with a guy called Sid Hammett, who is an antiques dealer in Hobart, who stumbles upon this book, this mysterious, strange book, you know, in an antique shop in Salamanca one day. And it's glowing purple um, and uh, he picks it up and sort of flicks through it and it's full of these weird pictures of fish and, and these weird stories and um, he takes it away and starts to read it and he realizes that this story is one of the strangest most bizarre things he's ever read and it's really captivating and it's also he he knows from you know the little he knows about tasmanian history he can see that the stories it's telling about tasmania past are just not true they're like weirdly yeah yeah they're sort strange. of true yeah. but weirdly sort of invented as well yeah and um the, the more he reads, the more intrigued he gets. And eventually the book dissolves into a puddle of seawater and kind of disappears. And um, uh, we, we then sh shift time periods to the past and we and we meet the, the person who wrote the book. We meet William Gould um, you know, way back in Tasmania's early um, settlement times. And uh, yeah. we then follow William Gould for a number of years as he goes through various mishaps and adventures and gets imprisoned eventually on... Um, Sarah Island on the west coast of Tasmania, the penal settlement there, and um, is put into this awful, awful prison cell that's sort of half underwater when the tide comes in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's floating in his prison cell. And we, we see him writing the book there. He, he um, finds all these different writing materials. He writes on, he's got this book that he's given to paint fish in, but he writes with blood and he writes with fish guts and he writes with anything he can find. Yeah. Anything he can find. And so, the book itself, the physical version of the book, I've, I've got the hardcover copy um, here that was that was printed in 2000. And every chapter is written in a different colored ink. I was going to say that because I that was not my experience. So I was doing the research on this and I found out that every chapter had a slightly different shade to it. And that is absent from later printings. So can you like, what does that do to the book when you read it? Like, does it just add another little, a little bit of sparkle onto it that makes a little bit deeper meaning. Like what effect does that have on the reader when it's got these different colors? It's, it's incredible. I mean, and it's not really? only the colors, the, the colors of the ink are one thing, but they're also the, the, the reproductions of the actual pictures because Gould's book of fish, of course, is a, is a real thing. It's um, yeah. it exists. It's, it's a book of paintings, watercolor paintings of, of fish um, by William Gould, who was a, who was a convict transporter to Tasmania for forgery. Um, he was quite a talented artist, as it turned out. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, you can you can go and see that the original actual Gould's Book of Fish in the Old Port Library um, wow. Museum in Hobart. 
Yeah, right. Which I've seen as well, and it's you know it's gobsmackingly beautiful. His, his pictures are just absolutely beautiful. These these they look real. The fish on the page. So you've got you've got the coloured ink, and then you've got the pictures reproduced as well throughout the book. And the effect is to make it feel as if you're holding that same artifact that yeah. Sid Hammett was holding in in Salamanca. You know, you're you're kind of drawn into the story. It feels like you're holding part of the story itself in your hand, which is yeah. what he's going for. This is obviously the effect he's going for here is to, is to draw you in and make you feel like you're part of the fantasy as well. That's so cool. I love all that. I love all those little things that sort of immerse you that little bit deeper in the world of the book. It's really clever. Um, can we just go back, if you don't mind, just a second to to what you were talking about where this this book's not talked about as much in Flanagan's career. So I I came to Flanagan through Narrow Road, which I imagine you know, 90% of his readers would have. So it was just such a huge hit in 2014. It won the man Booker. Um, and then when I started to go back through his catalogs, I loved that book so much. I went back and the book that came up first, as far as, you know, reading Flanagan, you got to read this book, which was The Sound of One Hand Clapping. And that was made into a film in 98. That was his second novel, I think. So that one was sort of up there as well. And then after that, it was it went to Death of a River Guide as his first debut. But yeah, Gould's Book of Fish wasn't as mentioned as much in that conversation. Why do you think it's faded a little bit as far as like its cultural importance in Australian literature, maybe? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I know from an academic's point of view, and, you know, I lecture in creative writing and, and I, I write journal articles and I wrote about Gould's Book of Fish as part of my PhD. So this is, this is a topic close to my heart. But I know from an <laughs> academic point of view, Academics love this book. There is so much being written about it. Um, there are, you know, dozens of journal articles written about this book because it is such an interesting point of study. Um, it's just so strange and unusual in, in Australian fiction, in the history of Australian fiction. There aren't many books like it at all. It's, it's incredibly unique. Mm. Um, but it is. I mean, it, you're right to, to think about it in terms of his career. Like if you look at um, where he started, so Death of a River Guide, which is a, and also quite an unusual book. Um, that was his first novel. Um, but then his second novel, uh, Sound of One Hand Clapping, is quite a straightforward novel. You know, it's a, it's a story about a woman who um, gets back in touch with her, mm. her past and her family history. Yes. Tries to find out what happened to her mother. You know, pretty straightforward sort of um, domestic literary fiction. Yeah. But then Gould's Book of Fish absolutely came out of nowhere. I don't think anyone <laughs> expected Richard Flanagan to write a book like this for his third novel because yeah. The Sound of One Hand Clapping was a massive hit as well. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies in Australia and was shortlisted for a lot of prizes. He made it into a film. Yeah. He was a superstar after that book came out. You know, that, that book was enormous and he was a superstar in Australian literature after that came out. And Gould's Book of Fish is an absolute, like, left turn that nobody it, yeah, saw coming. It really it's is. so strange. Yeah, it's such a strange follow-up to a book like that. You know, The Sound of One Hand Clapping, another Tasmanian classic. It's the last book you would think um, a guy like him would produce as a follow-up, but here we are. Yeah, and I mean, I was... Because I, was, I like to talk a little bit about just a few things for people who are listening to this podcast who maybe are looking to break in or, you know, debut novelists, emerging writers, that sort of thing. But... I found a few good quotes that I wanted to talk to you about from Flanagan about writing. And this is sort of in line with maybe this adventurous third novel of his. But he said this uh, at one point, what a writer needs above all is a mad courage to overcome the fear of failure we all have, which is also unfortunately often also the most destructive vanity. 
And I was, I just really caught into that idea of this mad courage to overcome the fear of failure. Like it must have been scary for him. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's the right word. It's a strange decision he's made. Like to to come up with the idea for Gould's Book of Fish, but then to sit down for years and years and write this weird, mythical, like would you say magical realism in a way, or just, just yeah. what would you call it? You're the academic person. <laughs> But it's got all this magic and like strangeness and then yeah it must have just been this mark of courage for him i don't know how do you respond to all that it defies categorization doesn't it like it's, it's it does it's, it's it really just does. hard to label what kind of book is it is it is it magic realism yes um it's sort of. postmodern yes it's it's yeah. it's also his, like very importantly and very straightforwardly historical fiction um, in in a, in a kind of strange way, like it's one of the yes. most truthful books about yes. Tasmania's history. Yeah. Ironically, because it doesn't tell the truth at all about what happened in <laughs> Tasmania, but it still somehow manages to be incredibly truthful about the past in Tasmania, which is one of its most interesting characteristics. Mm. Yeah, it, I think um, for people who haven't read it, for people listening, I yeah. think one of a couple of examples of what we're talking about here and how strange this book is and why it is so hard to categorize. Um, while Gould is on Sarah Island, the penal settlement, um, the you know this this um, penal settlement is run by a guy called the Commandant. The Commandant, who, yep. Who is just this? I don't know what he's supposed. He's sort of like a, a little Napoleon or some kind of mad dictator who runs the island like a sort of fantasy, um, like like his own little empire. Somewhere. Yeah. And he gets this idea that he wants to build a train line that will connect Sarah Island, you know, to the rest of the world, to China, you know, outwards and, and to New York and to all of these places. So he, he thinks that if he builds a train station on Sarah Island and starts to lay the tracks, the rest of the world will build a train line out towards them. Oh and they'll be God. connected to the whole world. And yeah. It, you know, it's full of these total insanities. He ends up building a train line, but it, but um, it just it only goes in a circle. <laughs> so when they build a train, they put a train on the train line. It just goes around and around and around in a circle. Yeah. And the commandant just sort of has fun and drives around on this train in a circle between like the one station that they've got on the island. Jeez. It's it's insanity. You know, like of course none of this ever happened on Sarah Island. There was no train station. There was no train line built on Sarah Island. But a lot of the other things they described did happen. And the people that they described were all real people, you know. Yeah. Um, William Gould, of course, is a real person. And the pictures in the book are all real. And it, yeah. it, it's, it becomes the fantasy and, and the reality are so intertwined that it becomes hard to tell which one is which. Which is and, which, absolutely. And you're drawn into it. And the fantasy becomes just as real, which is, which is the most fascinating part about it, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, it's 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 so strange to think about this idea. Like you can't, when you're reading it, you can't really. He doesn't write it in a way that's like making fun of it or sort of like stepping outside of it and looking at this thing like it's a satire or anything like that, where you sort of laugh at the absurdity of the commandant. It's all taken really, really seriously, sort of. Like I can't even really say that either because you, while I'm reading it, I'm still sort of sitting there going, "Oh, come on." Oh gosh, it's hard to like you're saying. It's very hard to categorize how he does what he does a lot of the time. Yeah, it's black humor, isn't it? You know, it's it's the the gallows humor. Like the, William Gould at one point is is strapped to the front of that train. They tie him onto the front of the train as a punishment and just let him run round and round and round in circles for days. <laughs> and, and you're laughing. It's hilarious, but at the same time, it's horrifying. And yeah, there's so much like that in the in the novel. There's so much that you're laughing at, but you but you're never quite sure why you're laughing because it's it's 
very, very dark humor a lot of the time. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's, it's, it's a satire, but it, the, the targets of the satire in the novel are not generally what we expect. I mean, of course, he's taking the piss out of, um, you know, or, or different governments that have come and gone in Tasmania, you know, people who have these big nation building idiocies that they want to put into action in Tasmania, you know, and like yeah. the, the, um, the, pet, the Lake Pedder, you know, hydro scheme, you know, trying, trying to drown whole lakes and build dams and all of these kinds of things that have happened in Tasmanian history that he's sort of subtly taking the piss out of. Um, but at the same time, there's also the, the, the real target of the satire in the novel is often, um, you know, the, the fact that we, that we trust history, you know, that our, our faith in historians and in the story that historians tell us is the target of his satire a lot of the time. Yeah. It, it, Gould's Book of Fish itself, like the, the book that William Gould is writing is supposed to be uh, like an accurate true account, true account of yeah. what he sees on Sarah Island because he knows nobody will ever believe him. And, and he can see at the same time that the commandant is writing his own history of Sarah Island, which is, which, which hides all of this horrible stuff, you know, hides, hides the story of the train and all of yep. this other craziness that's going on with, with a kind of very straightforward official history. The history we probably story. know more, right? That, that that's right. History, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So there's a, there's a really interesting game going on inside Gould's Book of Fish about what we trust when we read stories about the past. And, yeah. And what's lost, you know, the, the, the craziness that has been lost you know, and the, and, the, and, the, and the sort of sanitized official histories that we still have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's brave writing, isn't it? Like, you're right. You know, he, he is a brave writer. Very brave. Yeah. It's a huge... It feels risky when you're reading it. It feels risky. Like, I don't... It's like he's he's like he's a, an acrobat on a high wire and I don't know how he's balancing all the time and pulling off all the things he's pulling off. And I'm like, is he going to land... Is this, you know, it feels like he's going to fall off and it's going to become too silly or too serious or I don't even know, but or too magical. But it, he never, to me, he never seems to fall into any of those little, I guess those easy cliche kind of traps where something falls into some a place so neatly that you can sort of feel the strings being manipulated by the author. He doesn't seem to do that. It seems to come just from this sense of feeling and actually can i talk to you about this because i wanted to talk about the idea of structure in regard to this novel um so yeah i did i've read this novel i love this novel but i read it once about a year ago and in preparation for this i've sort of just cribbed you know from memory and notes so you have a much better understanding of it but my memory of the structure of it was it was kind of like this fever dream and it would go forward and then it would go back and you never really know where you are precisely, but I always knew where I was. Um, and I got this quote from him where Flanagan actually says about structure, he says, I write from feeling above all, but I do try and give it structure because a novel without structure is a jellyfish pretending to be a shark and a novel must have form or it's nothing. So he's actually using fish there in his <laughs> metaphor about structure. But can you talk us through how you look at the structure of this novel and how it functions? Because it sort of seems to put us on edge at the same time as it's... Anyway, yeah, I'll let you talk about it a little. It's fascinating, isn't it? I One of the most interesting things about this book for me is that it's simultaneously sort of familiar and comforting, but also 
extremely strange and unusual. And, and I think one of the reasons why it's, it feels so familiar and comforting is because the, the frame, the framing, you know, the, the, the bigger story, you know, the story inside a story is such a familiar device that we've seen many times. And it, it's sort of following the generic tropes of the, the portal fantasy in some ways here, like Alice in Wonderland or mm. the never ending story is probably even a better example of this, you know, like Bastion finds that book in a bookstore and, you know, and, and takes it home and starts reading it and gets drawn in, into the land um, you know, Fantasia, you know, yeah. that, that story is so timeless and that, that shape, you know, it, it's, it's the wizard of Oz as well. You know, Dorothy goes through the tornado and gets sucked through into another world into Oz. Like Sid Hammett has the same experience. He gets sucked through the, the portal of the novel back into the past. And, you know, we, you know, we enter that strange world, that, that fantasy world of mm. the past. So mm. the structure is really familiar. Like it's, 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 generic yeah but but he does so much with it as well at the same time he he pushes it so far and he, he you're right like it feels like he's walking a tightrope and he could fall off at any moment but he yeah. keeps finding ways to uh raise the stakes you know and to make it feel bigger and bigger and more important as it goes and it, and it reaches this really fascinating moment about um 80 of the way through the novel where william gould is dragging this sled full of piled up with the books of the false history that the commandant has been writing about Sarah Island because he wants to, he wants to take this false history and show it to the world and show them how delusional they are and how misled they've been by the commandant. Um, but he picks up a, a, a copy of one of the books as he's dragging them through the forest and starts reading it. And as he's reading it, he realizes it's narrating his own life. And, and you get this weird that's, moment. That's right. Yeah, gosh. Yeah. The book folds in on itself and you're reading the moment that Gould is reading and you're reading it at the same time and the language <laughs> echoes itself and it becomes this weird like mirror effect where the novel kind of is reflecting itself. It's oh. so strange and so well done and so clever. Um that it just feels like it belongs perfectly and it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it doesn't feel like he's putting on airs or trying too hard. Like it just feels effortless, like it was all leading to this thing. But yeah, I remember that. I remember I remember being awestruck at how clever it seemed and how I felt I felt myself sort of folding in on myself in addition to what the writing was doing. Like it's not just this academic you just admire it from a distance. Like it's got a real emotional impact as well, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, that moment reflects moments we've seen in, in other fiction. It reflects, it reflects that moment in, in the never ending story where, uh, you know, the, the, the queen of Fantasia calls on Bastion to give her a name, you know, and, and she, she reaches out of the novel into the real world and talks to Bastion. And, you know, these, these moments in, in Gould's Book of Fish have echoes all throughout the literary canon. And so it, it it feels familiar. It, it's as strange as it is. It never feels. Um, it never feels completely alien. It always feels familiar and comfortable in a really strange way. Yeah, that's what I love about it. Well, it's also interesting too because the device that you're talking about, where someone is is reading a book or you know reading an artifact that they've found, and then we sort of enter that world with them. This book's a little different in that the book that he's he's not reading from a book. He read the book, but then it sort of it sort of fell apart in water or something. And then he is re this, this guy, Sid is recreating the text from his memory of the text. Yes. So you don't know which parts he's inserting from other, 
parts of his own life or what parts are really good or what parts are complete fiction, which I guess it all is. <laughs> exactly. That's where it becomes even more interesting is that the more, the more you think about which parts here, are, who's telling which story, you know, is it Sid or is it William Gould? And which yeah. parts can we which parts can we trust? <laughs> well, in the in the research, I found like I had no clue about this, but there are actual fragments and scenes from other books interwoven throughout. So things, so I haven't. I mean, you know, I, I don't know how well read I am by other people's standards. I feel like I've read a bit, but anyway, I haven't read these books. But the life and opinions of Tristram Sh Shandy and the mayor of Casterbridge um, apparently have these story elements, and I'm sure there's like heaps more where they happen to Gould like almost in exactly the same way as they happen in these other stories. And that kind of blew my mind. I had no clue about all this. But how was it for you reading? Because I'm sure when you read it, you had, especially when you're doing, you know, you're, you're doing your writing on the book, you've probably got a much better sense of all these different things. How does that factor into this, the making of this weird novel to you? How does this work? It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, Cormac McCarthy once said that books are made of other books. And, and this is the perfect example of, <laughs> of, of, of that, isn't it? It's, it's simultaneously fresh and unique and innovative, but also familiar and, and a, like an homage to, to yeah. some of the great masters. You know, Tristram Shandy, of course, is considered to be, you know, weirdly and strangely one of the first postmodern novels, even though it was written in the, in the early 1800s. <laughs> it's, it's a strange yeah. sort of self-referential book as well in a lot of ways in the same way that Gould's Book of Fish is. And, and yeah, I, I think as a Tasmanian, the things that jumped out at me when I was reading it were the familiar names, you know, and the familiar people that we meet, like Jorgen Jorgensen is one character who comes up again and again in the book, The yeah. King of Iceland. Who was, a, who was a real historical figure. He was, he was king of Iceland for about six days after a coup took place and um, the, the, the real king was dethroned and, and Jorgen Jorgensen was installed as, as a temporary sort of yeah, king wow. for six days. But then he was eventually uh, somehow transported to Tasmania and, and lived out his life here. But um, we encounter people like that in the book and it was strange for me, having read a lot of Tasmanian history and being familiar with all these people, to encounter fictional versions of them yeah, book of fish, and and for them to be so accurately portrayed as well, like they're not um, they're not caricatures. He he obviously did a lot of research and he knew a lot about all of these different people, and was able to write sort of quite insightfully about them, uh, and present interesting fictional versions of them in ways that were um, sort of satirical, but at the same time like revealing. And yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's an the more you dig into this book, the more you uncover about it, the more you learn about it, the more kind of awestruck you are about what he's been able to achieve with it. Yeah, that's, yep, yeah, it's absolutely right. Um, we've talked, and you've mentioned a few times this this idea of postmodernism. Now, I'm I'm a layman completely with, with you know, academic words and things like that. But as far as I understand postmodernism, it's sort of like this self-referential idea about writing about story and writing about, writing um can you maybe you can unpack the word a lot well of course you can can you please unpack the words in a better way what's postmodernism and how does this book sort of relate to that idea postmodernism was an intellectual movement that started around um after world war ii but gained steam in the in the 60s um it, it was different in every, it affected every field of, of intellectual thought uh you know across all disciplines it, it, you know history architecture art, um, 
linguistics. Every, every field was touched by postmodernism. But in, in literature, it had a particular characteristic. And I think you're right. Like it, 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 essentially, it was a sort of self-referentialism and a, and a knowingness about the writing of fiction hmm. and, and a willingness to talk about a book's constructedness. It, a sort of, I guess in, in some ways, it's, it's um, a writer's decided to stop lying to their audiences they start they tried they decided to stop pretending Ooh. that fiction was this kind of invisible world like window onto the world you know mm. yeah if all all books all writing is constructed and it's all a form of rhetoric and it's all trying to persuade you about something and postmodernism is, is that type of writing that's open and honest about its acts of persuasion on you whereas modernism tries to hide its acts of persuasion tries to fool you and trick you into thinking that what you're seeing is reality or or, or is somehow a, a version of the real world. Um, whereas postmodernism sort of abandons a lot of that and just says, you know what, words are words and words in the world aren't the same thing. Um, yeah. Let's just have fun with words. Do you think that that's kind of like part of why the book feels so, like it does, it feels like a really honest book for all its absurdity and silly flights and strange structure and all these other things that we've been mentioning it does feel like a really heartfelt honest book do you think that's part of it it's sort of like like i'm I'm pulling back this veneer that we normally put in front of us and i'm sort of pointing out where the construction is a bit silly and we need to work with this silly construction in order to make meaning and pointing it out is sort of this act of i guess being honest with how we're communicating do you reckon that's true Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a huge part of why this book's so fascinating. And there, there is always a sense with, with these postmodern books um, that you're right, like there's, a, there's an honesty to them. You feel as if the author is being really honest with you. They're not, they're, you, you can, like you said before, you can see the puppet master working the strings. They're not trying to hide the strings. They're not trying to hide the fact there's a puppet master here. Yeah. They're being really honest about that. And that, that sort of lulls you into... I don't know, you trust the author. You trust an author who's that honest and open with you. And I think that's one of the reasons why postmodernism in literature was so successful and so popular for so long is that it, is that it did engender trust in readers in a way that most... It's sort of... It, 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 in contrast to modernism, you know, which is the way even today, even now, which is the way 99% of writers operate. They operate in that modernist mode of you know, psychological realism psychological accuracy, you know, characters that we can believe, you know, situation, domestic, you know, domestic situations that we can believe and understand. Making your writing believable. Absolutely. Yep. Making your writing believable. Yeah. So postmodernists tend to abandon that a little and just say to hell with it. Um, I'm just going to pull back the curtain and let you see what's really going on. And it does. It feels honest. It feels honest. I think the problem with postmodernism is that it can start to feel like a gimmick. It can start to feel as if it's a one-trick pony, you know, it can see... Once once you've read a few postmodern novels and you've felt that bracing honesty, it's hard to get it again and again and again when you read sure. it. Oh, we've only got that one thing to say in some yeah. ways. Yeah. yeah. So you just when when you're sipping from that particular glass, just do it infrequently <laughs> to keep it <laughs> fresh and shocking each time, I guess. Yeah. But the interesting thing here is that postmodernism in, in, in literature is is mostly an aesthetic movement. You know, it, it is often just about new ways, new, new rhetorical forms, new ways of persuading your audience or convincing them or winning them over. Yeah. But in history, postmodernism was deeply destructive and deeply divisive because the same, mm. the same things we're pointing out, you know, that stories are constructed, that all texts are rhetorical. 
that goes against everything historians believed up until the 1960s. You know, they, they staked their reputations. They, they staked their entire discipline on the fact that, that the, the, the past was objectively knowable. You know, we could, we could uncover the facts about the past. We could write them down objectively and that they would stand and stay true for eternity. But postmodernism kind of put an axe through all of that and said, you know what, you're just a middle-class white yeah. guy at a university who's obsessed with middle-class white guy things, writing about his own little narrow view of the world. You know, there are other ways wow, of looking yeah. at the world out there that you've ignored for centuries. You've silenced Aboriginal perspectives. You've silenced women. You've yeah. silenced queer perspectives. All of, all of these things were not part of history because they weren't white middle-class male concerns. So yeah. Yeah, postmodernism in history was deeply destructive. The idea that you, when you write a book of history, it's just a story that you're telling. You know, it's just one, one possible version, one story of the past, and that it's not objectively true is very threatening to historians. And that's one of the things that Gould's Book of Fish is trying to get everyone to understand. It's trying, it's trying to show the, you know, History is hard to trust. You yeah. should be very, very wary when you read history books because they are just a story. Do you they think are as slippery as fiction? Do you think too, though? Like when I when I read books like this, and in my little, you know, I don't know how many times I've read postmodernism per se, but there are these books and these films that you watch or that you read that not only sort of point out, like you say, the flaws in the construction of historical narratives, but it also it becomes about me when I read these books and the the way I look back over my own life and construct my own narratives about what's happened to me or things that I've done or things that I've said. And the book kind of helps you, I don't know about it helps you, but sort of just gets you to have a, a rethink about the way you've framed things, I guess. So I guess it's sort of deconstructing maybe the, the way we frame our own narratives. And I guess it also really helps me to understand too that there my story is my story, but like if I'm if I'm interacting with someone else, they bring their whole thing with them and our two stories aren't necessarily going to be true, which I guess is the same for Sid and Gould and the Commandant as well. Do you think that's what postmodernism sort of gets at in its at its core, like emotional core, like this idea of deconstructing our own stories? That's really insightful, yeah. The, one of the key uh, tenets or one of the key ideas that underpins postmodernism, especially in history and, and literature, is that um, stories aren't true. Like a story isn't, a, a story is a human invention. Stories don't exist naturally in the world. Like yeah. if you if you go to the history books and you look at the evidence, you look at the archival material, you don't find stories there. You find facts and you take facts and you lay them together in a certain order and you create a story. Yes. And it's the same for us. We, we create our own stories about our own lives. You know, we create stories about who we are and fiction like this can can do that to you. It can, it can force you to relook at your own story or, or to understand that you're the story you tell about yourself is also just a creation in the same way that these books are creations. Yeah. And stories, are, they're always self-authors. They're, 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 a story always has an author and stories always reflect the author. They have to. Yeah. Uh, which, is, which is one of the most sort of challenging and difficult concepts in postmodernism. But it's, it's such a true thing that once you, once you understand it, once you perceive it, it changes how you think about the world, I think, in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, yeah, to move on to something a little bit different. Um, 
I wanted to talk really quickly about um, maybe actually, you know what, let's stick with this subject. I've just, sorry, I'm just reading this quote here from the book, um, which I guess is maybe talking a little bit about this. I found this just online. Like I was just talk, looking at some Gould's quotes and this one popped out at me is sort of this idea of like not being fully aware of our own lives and not being fully aware of how we've constructed them. But it says here, men's lives are not progressions as conventionally rendered in history paintings, which I guess is exactly what you're saying, nor are they a series of facts that may be enumerated and in their proper order understood. Rather, they are a series of transformations, some immediate and shocking, some so slow as to be imperceptible, yet so complete and horrifying that at the end of his life, a man may search his memory in vain for a moment of correspondence between his self in his dotage and him in his youth. So <laughs> beyond him being an amazing writer, like, my gosh, how well structured is that thought? But I guess the idea of like, you know, where we end up in our old age or even where I am now, like I'm turning 37, a very old man here in a few days but then like trying to link that back to who i was as a kid and then it's like yeah it's just it's almost this disconnect and i guess this book is so full of disconnections as well between different things like it just i don't know i don't know what i'm saying with this i just really love that quote and i love i love how he can get you to think so deeply about your own life with this absurd story about fish and yeah <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah, good. Well, these questions, you know, like Richard Feynman reads very widely. I mean, he reads philosophy, you know, he reads history, he reads all the great writers, you know, and he, he this stuff isn't in, in there by accident. You know, he's mm. thought long and hard about this. And that quote touches on a few different things. Like it certainly touches on ideas of postmodernism, you know, um, the, the great postmodern theorist, um, Francois Lyotard, said that um, basically his, his idea of postmodernism was the idea that meta-narratives um, don't exist, you know, and by that he meant things like the idea of progress, you know, like those enlightenment narratives, rationality, right. you know, human progress. These, these he called meta-narratives and he said they are just absolute fictions, you know. Wow. They, they, they don't exist in a very fundamental way. They are just stories that we tell ourselves and, that's one of the things that Richard Flanagan is hinting at in that in that um, in that quote there as well. But it's also deeply existential. Like the, when you when you realise that those kinds of stories don't exist for a society, they also don't exist for us. You know, like when we reach old age, we don't. When we're a different, we're literally a different person. You know, we don't remember yeah. who we were as a teenager or as or as a or as a young adult. We don't remember them. We don't remember what they thought. We're so different to those people. They would be unrecognizable to us in a lot of ways. Mm. We change, you know, and we forget the stories we used to tell about ourselves and we invent new ones as we go along. Um, and stories are all we have. You know, the stories we have about ourselves are all we have. And when you lose those stories, you lose who you were as a person. Um, mm, yeah. It's, that... it's yeah. The, the, this book is always full of these kinds of ideas. It's, it's, you know, every, every chapter has ideas like this in it and, and they force you really <laughs> confrontingly to kind of look at who you are and, and your yeah. place in the world. Yeah. yeah, they really, he really does. And like, do, would you, do you think that that's part of Flanagan's real power, like in how he writes that I have this other quote here again from, from the book, but he has, 
which I'll read in a second, but he seems to have this real knack for saying something that seems really unique and profound and new in this way that's his alone, but then it feels so right that it's not something that he made up. It's almost something like he's unearthed all these ideas, which I, I find, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Both inspiring and I'm deeply jealous of his mind. Um, there's this quote, I'll read it here. It says, uh, this is from the book, um, the Gould's Book of Fish. Maybe we've lost the ability, that sixth sense that allows us to see miracles and have visions and understand that we are something other, larger than what we have been told. Maybe evolution has been going on in reverse longer than I suspect, and we are already sad, dumb fish. So this idea of, I guess, like deconstructing the idea of progress again, right? He's, he's sort of turning that around and saying, we're not progressing, things are changing. And the, like the idea that we're making gains on on some weird goal that no one's really clearly identified. No, we're not just things are shifting, things are moving. Like he seems, yeah, he just has this way of putting things so well. And I don't know, is this what you find as well when you read Flanagan? Like this is part of his power? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that occurs in, in Gould's Book of Fish is that uh, at the same time as Gould is on the island, um, the, the, the Sarah Island penal settlement, um, at the same time as that's happening, there's also around Sarah Island a sort of genocide of the Aboriginal population going on. And Gould manages um, to escape the settlement and he meets a couple of Aboriginal people. You know, And so, like, the idea of progress is really challenged by that because, for, you know, okay, even if you do accept that progress is happening for people, like, maybe, maybe it was happening for, like, people like the Commandant. Yes. strongly believe in progress you know his mission is, is to civilize tasmania and to civilize the wilderness and to bring progress to the island but at the same time the aboriginal people are living through an apocalypse you know they're it's the opposite yeah. of, their world is being destroyed all around yes. them yeah um, by these people right. who think they're bringing civilization who think they're bringing progress like the two frames of reference there are, are sort of juxtaposed against each other in in the, the later stages of the novel and, and we understand of course that the commandant is deeply delusional in his ideas and beliefs about progress. It's it is yeah, well, then he's trained in, in circles, like you said, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. It's it's you know Flanagan sets up these ideas and then undercuts them and undermines them and mocks them and satirizes them so expertly and so uniquely that uh, yeah, it's it's beautiful writing. It's very clever. Yeah. Um, geez, I love that. Um, I wanted to go to one more quote too from the book. Um, and this I sort of thought about when I was reading this, I sort of thought about like the idea of writing and the idea of creativity in general. Um, so it said, Billy Gould has always felt if something was worth doing, it was worth doing badly. Worry, worry about doing it too well, he believed, and you may well be crippled by your ambition. And I was thinking about that in regard to my own writing and then writing and creativity in general, like this idea that, even when you are, if all you do is overthink your project or overthink it, you will never start, you'll never write. So give you give yourself permission to write badly. Um, did you, do you agree with that idea? Like write badly for a while? 
I wonder if Flanagan yeah. thinks that too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Just write. Like, write is right. You know, that's what they do. And, and, if, you, and if your anxiety around writing is, is holding you back from writing, then, then definitely just let it go and just write. Just write every day. I mean, that, you, you do need to do things badly. You, you, can't, you can't reach good until you've gone through bad. You have to go through bad to get to good. So, yeah, so yeah. Just, get, just do the bad. Just do it. Just get it out and live through it. Go through it. Learn from it. And keep going until you get to the good. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there is a point in your writing career, there's a point where you start to learn enough about writing that you don't have to do it badly anymore if you don't want to. If you want to be good at it, you, you can be yeah. good at it. But it's going to take a little bit of thought and effort. Yeah, <laughs> so it's yeah. hard. It's hard. You can't, you can't just knock something out and just send it out and expect it will be published. You've got to work at it. You've got, You've got to, to work at it. Good. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a strange dilemma. Creativity is an endlessly baffling process for me. I I think I understand it, and then I realize I don't understand anything about it at all. It's I so absolutely agree with that. Yeah. It seems like Flanagan's really interesting with his own writing as well. Like he seems to be really, really. Um, he seems to labor over it in a way. Like I read, no, you know, Narrow Road. He wrote numerous times. He wrote full manuscripts and then just threw them in the bin and said, "This is not." This is not engaging. This is boring. I don't think this is good. And he, he seems to do that a lot. He seems to really just take a an axe to things that he's been working on, like just ruthlessly getting to the heart of the thing. Like I wonder how many different versions of Goulds there are, like how many different cracks at a scene he had, you know, how he redrafts and... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it would be interesting to find out, wouldn't it? I know that Narrow Road to the Deep North, he started writing as um, like Haibun, you know, the, the poetry that, that Basho was writing. He tried to write it in the same style that the great Japanese poets wrote, which was, you know, they would write a, sort of like a travelogue mixed with poetry. And so he tried to write it that way. There's a draft somewhere of Narrow Road to the Deep North that's written in Japanese style poetry, wow. which would be fascinating to read, wouldn't it? it would. But, you know, that's right. So he, he works his way through these creative problems and it arrives at solutions. And they look obvious at the end, you know, like we read Good's Book of Fish on Narrow Road to the Deep North and it looks obvious that it should be this way. But that's the result of a lot of trial and error and, and yeah. a, lot of, a lot of wasted words, a lot of wasted time. And there's no, there's no real reason about why you go one way over another. Like I imagine a really good rock good poet probably could have written it in, in the style of, of Matsuo Basho, you know, and yeah. made it work as, as haibun or, you know, or, or uh, haiku, something like that. But, you know, for, for whatever reason, Flanagan took it in another direction and found, it, found a way that satisfied his urges and satisfied his, you know, the, the vision that he had in his mind. And I think that's basically what it comes down to. You, 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 end, you get to trust your instincts, I think. Once you've, once you've written enough, yeah. You to trust your instincts a little more and you can you can spot when your work is not living up to your vision and you can and you can make those tough decisions and you can take an axe to it you know you can you know look at look at everything you love about your writing and then heartlessly just destroy it all um, and I think that's that's where good writers end up they end up being having that ability to destroy something that they love yeah 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 even though it's taken years and years and time and effort and it's it could be pretty good I guess. It just seems to be ruthless. Um, I guess I guess that's sort of the end, Rowan. Um, do you have any any final thoughts that you want to talk about with this novel at all? Like, I know, I know this is like up there for you, and 
I guess maybe is there any way to talk about it in a way like if anyone's on the fence still about reading this this book that could convince them do you think to pick this up and to have a go at reading this book why, why should they read this novel oh look first and foremost it's hilarious you know it's <laughs> it's incredibly funny it's incredible all the way through it's, it's, yeah. it's easily his funniest book you know he's he's a very funny writer and um this, this it's it's this novel is a comic novel you know it's it's meant to be funny and it's laugh out loud funny in a lot of places but it is also deeply touching yeah and deeply serious about the world, you know, around us. And it's, it's unique. You know, there are, there are no other novels like this in, in the Australian literary canon. Um, yeah. I mean, you've got things like, it's, it's closest neighbours would be books like maybe The True History of the Kelly Gang by Peter Carey. Sure. Um, or, you know, maybe if you went back into in the past, a book like Such Is Life, you know, from, from, the, from 1900, which is also a kind of funny strange take on, on the Australian past. You know, there, there are these books out there that, that they're very rare. Like postmodernism is such a rare thing in Australia. It's, it's so very rarely practised by authors. You know, we, you almost never see it. Well, actually, well, we did see uh, two or three years ago, Ryan O'Neill won the Australian Prime Minister's Award um, for his very strange book of um, his, uh, like, dictionary or encyclopedia of, of Australian fictional Australian writers. Yeah. That was a very strange book as well, in the same way that Gould's Book of Fish is strange. And every now and then, like, you know, maybe every five or ten years, a book like this emerges from, from an Australian writer somewhere. And mm. it, they just sit you back in your seat and make you go, wow, you know, that is incredibly inventive and creative and inspiring in so many ways. And, um, you know, these, these, these kinds of books are just extremely rare and they should be savoured and they should be valued by anyone who loves writing, you know, if you love writing, you will love this book. It's it's just an absolute Australian classic in so many different ways. You you um you really did sell that well. I want to go and read it again. I have to go. <laughs> I have to go. I couldn't find it. I think I mentioned it at the start. I couldn't find it. It's in. I'm in halfway through moving, so all my books are in cardboard boxes, and I rifled through so many of them, but I just made such a mess. I couldn't find it. I need to go find it. I need to read it again. I think. Um, thank you well, so I have much. Hardcover edition, first edition, oh. signed by Richard Flanagan. So, oh my god, it's, it's my most prized possession. That, and you've got the the cool inks and all that cool stuff. Like I just, I was blown away by that. Um, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you stepping in and. Um, for doing this and uh yeah for people listening i just really do recommend going to get this book gould's book of fish and you know make sure you if you if you're reading it tag us in tag words and nerds um podcast in tag me or rowan in we're both on twitter um i would love to actually hear what your thoughts are of of the book as well and whether you found it as compelling and interesting as rowan and i did um yeah thanks man thanks for being here appreciate it I no, appreciate it. Happy to come back anytime you need me. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you.